At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we step into the new year, we're turning to the book of James for our message series, Live the Truth. In a culture preaching the power of whatever feels right to you, it's time to set aside positive vibes for a truth you can stand on. Join us as we answer James' call to reject the latest feel-good message for a mature faith. If I were to ask you who the wisest person you know is, what do you think your answer might be? How would you? <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate that, but I don't know if I'd put myself in that category. How, how would you even begin to evaluate that question? Sometimes our nine naturally rise. Maybe you start to think of the smartest person you know. Okay, well, I know of some people that know some things or have that ability to engage lots of information. But is knowledge, is intelligence, is that wisdom? Some of us might be tempted to think of the most successful person we know. Maybe in business or an athlete, someone who's at the top of their game. That, that's, that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is knowing how to navigate to Success. But is success wisdom? I mean, I know some people that are successful. I don't know if I'd call them wise. I know people that are really smart. I don't know if they're wise either. I remember being struck a few years ago. I was reading the Steve Jobs biography a little while after he passed away, and I remember how Jobs was heralded as this kind of hero of the tech industry, right? And he was labeled as this kind of genius that brought forth these incredible devices that we have and how he revolutionized our very lives through Apple and through the electronics that he was able to bring in to fruition. And I was intrigued by this man. I was intrigued by the reality of his supposed genius and his ability to navigate, to create these sorts of things that literally have shaped our very world. And I was struck as I read his biography by how truly unwise he really was. I mean, if you read his biography, the man leaves a whole wake of hurt relationships. He, he literally would manipulate information in people to get what he wants all the time, creating facts that weren't even real to draw out of people things that he desired, whether it was good for them or not. He literally died of cancer that likely could have been avoided because he was unwilling to listen to his doctors and thought that he could beat cancer by just eating a healthier diet. And he was known for crazy eating habits, literally rejecting the very wisdom of people that tried to help him. And I thought, man, here's a guy that's held up as a genius, as something we should aspire to. And yet when you really dug underneath the surface... There wasn't a lot of wisdom. Sadly, I think a lot of people in our world today lack wisdom. Even though we live in the most advanced technological society in the history of the world, even though you and I have access instantaneously to more information than any generation previously, even though we have more self-help books, we have more life coaches, we have more opportunities to try to figure out how to better our lives, we are starved for wisdom. 
We're a generation searching in the dark, trying to find anyone to help us navigate all the mess and challenges of life. And so much so, we're so starved for wisdom that what we've actually done is we've turned inward. We become a generation of navel gazers thinking that the deeper I look in myself, maybe the more wisdom I will actually find. And that if we just align ourselves with what makes us most happy, then maybe we'll be okay. But the problem is, it's not working. And we know it's not working. The more we seek to find wisdom in ourselves, the more starved we are for it in our world. And if we're not careful, that can be true of us in the church just as much as it can be of those outside. I read this quote this week in an article on the book of James that struck me. It's by a man named Gary Holloway. He says, the entertainment media, self-help books, and success seminars shape what passes for wisdom or common sense in our world. This wisdom tells us that positive thinking, self-promotion, and tapping into hidden internal resources will bring happiness, excellence, and success. Such thinking is not just out there in the world. It is taken for granted in the church. We have traded worldly views of power and importance for God's viewpoint. We've traded wisdom for what we want to define it or what the world defines it as. So what is wisdom? How would we know if someone's wise? Scripture actually has a lot to say about wisdom. In fact, it's got whole books about it. And if you read through the story of Scripture, you see that wisdom is a narrative constantly being called to. The book of Proverbs hearkens wisdom like a lady standing and calling out, inviting those that would follow her to learn God's wisdom, to learn what it means to be wise. What is wisdom? Proverbs tells us, wisdom, or the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. See, that's what our world starves for. If I were to give you the most simple definition or summary of wisdom, I would simply say wisdom is living in God's world, God's ways. Can't remember where I heard that, but it's one of my favorite simplest definitions. It's learning to live in God's world, God's way. It's acknowledging that wisdom doesn't start from within. Wisdom comes from God's revelation to us. And as we learn who God is and we learn his ways, that's where we find wisdom. You want insight into life? Are you seeking answers for what it looks like to live the good life, the life that's meaningful and purposeful and full and rich, the life we're starred for? doesn't start from within it comes from the lord from knowing him and seeking after him wisdom is not living your truth wisdom is living the truth the truth of god how he made the world to be and what he calls us to be in living in it and so for the next few weeks we want to really dig into wisdom What does it look like to live our lives with godly wisdom? And to do that, we're going to study through the first couple chapters of the book of James. 
James is wisdom literature. It's written in a vein to help you know what it looks like, not just to know God, but actually apply it, to live it out, to bring it to bear in your life in such a way that you can live with wisdom. James is written to a people to encourage people who are struggling to live out their faith in the midst of the challenges of the world around them, to encourage them to say, listen, you can not only know wisdom, but you can actually live it. You can apply it. You can live the truth. James is a man who desires his readers to be marked by a mature faith that displays godly wisdom. And so for the next couple weeks, we're going to dig into James to see what does it look like to really live wisely, to live with godly wisdom. So with that said, let's kind of jump into this book and we'll just unpack it as we go and let James speak to us. He begins, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greeting. James starts his letter like most letters that were written in his day in the first century. This is the normal kind of standard intro to letter writing. If you and I were to start a letter today, how would you start it? You'd probably start it with, dear so-and-so, hope you're well, how are you, whatever those kind of phrases we use at the beginning. In James's day, often when you address a letter, you would start with yourself, and then you'd start with who you were writing your letter to, and James follows that formula. Naturally, the question we want to ask from the get-go is, who is this guy? Like, who is James, and why is he writing this letter? Right? Well, James, the James that penned this letter, is actually the half-brother of Jesus. He was the son of Joseph and Mary, and he grew up with a first-hand eyewitness reality of what Jesus was like. He would have grown up alongside and seeing Jesus, both in his early life and within his ministry. And James comes to believe that Jesus actually is the Messiah. Now, that's pretty profound, I think, right? Because if there's one person that's probably hard to convince that you're the Messiah, it's your brother. (laughs) You're like, I know this guy. But James, at some point, comes to trust and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, James comes to prominence within the early church in Jerusalem. In fact, he becomes one of the elders and leaders of it. He's so significant, Paul actually calls him in Galatians a pillar of the church. And he leads the church in such a significant way that his wisdom, his decisions, and the way he guides the church are very profound. In Acts 15, there's a challenge about how Gentiles, non-Jews, were going to be integrated into the Christian faith and whether they would have to assume Jewish practices in order to follow after Jesus. And James actually leads the council that makes the decision for the church and comes out and says, no, they don't have to do that. So we see this is a man who was close to Jesus and had tremendous wisdom. Where did James get his wisdom from? He actually shows us right away in his description of himself in the book. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think those two phrases are key to the book of James and his understanding of wisdom and what he wants to teach you. You see, James One, I love his humility that he's simply a servant, but he notes, I'm a servant of God. James is very Jewish, right? He's ethnically Jewish. He's shaped by the Old Testament. He would have been shaped very much by Jewish practices, and he led a Messianic church. So he led a church primarily full of Jews who had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. James's wisdom in this book is very much shaped by the Old Testament idea of wisdom. When you dig into books like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, 
and you dig into the narrative of the Old Testament and what it portrays wisdom as, James is very shaped by that. And you will see that theme run through his book as he encourages the church. But James also shaped by another reality. He's shaped by the teachings of Jesus. He's a servant of the Lord, right? That's a, a claim to Jesus' kingship of what he believes about him, that he's a servant of Jesus. And when you study through the book of James, as we'll see over there, James is very much shaped by Jesus' teaching and Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament. In fact, what you're going to see throughout this book is that James, in many ways, comes off as just a commentary on the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus' most famous teaching. In fact, most of the verses and chapters and ideas in James are simply allusions of, to the Sermon on the Mount applied to a specific audience. And so James holds wisdom in this, shaped by who God is and what he's revealed himself to be, and ultimately shaped through the teachings of Jesus. Now, who does James write to then, right? What was this, the 12 tribes in the dispersion? So James writes a book, essentially, to Messianic Jewish Christians who had come to believe in Jesus but because of that, had been scattered out due to persecution. What we see in the early church is it started in Jerusalem. And as these Jewish Christians began to believe in Jesus, they began to experience persecution. And this persecution started to scatter them into the areas surrounding Jerusalem. You actually see that in Acts chapter 8, one of those times and moments. If you look at it, I'll put it on the screen for you. It says in Acts 8.1, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Right, so James is in Jerusalem, but these Christians have been scattered due to the persecution. But devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So James is writing to a group of people who are experiencing tremendous challenges in their life and what it means to follow Jesus. James's audience is likely poor, they're persecuted, and they're trying to figure out what does it mean to actually follow this risen Messiah amidst all the challenges and forces of the world seeming to stand against us. And James essentially wants to lean in and say, hey, let me share some wisdom of what it looks like to really live wisely amidst the challenges that we face in this world. And the very first thing that James is going to lean into in trying to teach them what it looks like to live wisely, what it looks like to really engage faith in the midst of challenging seasons is he wants them to understand that mature faith survives seasons of suffering. He knows he has to go right after the core issue from the get-go because they're challenging and life is hard. And he knows if he's going to help them understand godly wisdom, the first place he needs to begin is help them understand godly wisdom when life is at its hardest. Because seasons of suffering can be the biggest challenges to our faith, no matter how they come, whether they come through persecution, whether they come through intimate suffering, whether they come from the brokenness of the world outside or the brokenness and reality of our world within. When we face seasons of suffering, it does not leave us in neutral. It always forces us to either move towards God or away from God. And they often become the biggest challenges that we face in life. And James knows that if he does not help these Christians understand what it looks like to navigate the worst moments of life, to have godly wisdom and mature faith in those scenarios, then he won't be able to help build wisdom in other areas of life. 
You know, I think oftentimes in the American church, not specifically our church, but I think in the culture that surrounds us, we have been sold a lie that tells us that Christianity, true Christianity, is only found when life is easiest and most successful. But James knows that if we start to accept that understanding, then the moment suffering comes, we won't survive. Our faith won't make it. And likewise, I imagine these Christians were tempted to think, the Messiah's here, Jesus is here, everything's going to turn around. And they put their faith in him, and they start following him, and suddenly they experience persecution. Suddenly they're displaced from their homes. Suddenly James finds his church scattered all around, and I imagine they're asking the same questions we do in suffering. God, what is this about? How, How am I supposed to deal with this? This isn't what I thought I was signing up for. Yet James wants to help them see that there is a mature faith that's able to survive those seasons. That our faith doesn't just matter when things are well. It matters when life is at its worst. So James wants to help us understand what does faith look like? And what does a mature faith look like in the face of suffering? And he's going to give his audience three things. Three things that I want us to consider today of what it looks like to survive with mature faith in seasons of suffering. You see James's call for that maturity right away in verse 2. Look at it. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Have you ever had a moment where somebody said something, the wrong thing at the wrong time? Like where it's like, you're in one of those seasons where you're like, challenged and those people come to bring that like one encouraging word and you think that's the least encouraging thing I've ever heard in my life you're like right like you're you're, something bad happens you lose your job maybe you lose someone and they're like don't worry it'll all work out in the end you're like shut your mouth (laughs) right that that's that's what we feel so let's just admit that that's what a little bit we feel when we first read the words of James like if you're in suffering and you're struggling and you're being persecuted and James comes along and says like hey guys consider it joy you're like James be quiet like I can't deal with this right now but but I think uh, there's a couple things that we need to understand of why James begins that way one we need to recognize what James is calling for is not for us to simply have happy emotion To count it all joy when we face seasons of suffering is not what James is saying. First of all, the word that he uses there, where where we translate count, is the idea of considering or reckoning. It's a call of the mind, not simply a call of the emotion. So James isn't saying, be happy, it's all going to be okay. You're getting persecuted? No, great, joyful, awesome. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, if you're going to have a mature faith in seasons of suffering, you need to know what your mind is to focus towards. Consider. And then he says, consider it joy. Joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness is an emotion. Joy is a state of being. This is how New Testament Craig Blumberg defines joy in his commentary on this passage. He says this, joy is a state of being, a settled contentment in every situation or an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, and unadulterated thankful trust in God. 
So that changes James's call here. James isn't saying, be happy. He's saying, when you face seasons, consider, count it, reckon it in your mind that you can trust God, that those things do not have to shake your faith in who God is and how God works in the world. You can have a deep contentment even in the worst moments of life. You say, well, James, how do you do that? Well, he gives you part of his answer in verse 3. Four, here's the reason why you can count it all joy. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, part of the way that we survive, the way that we have joy in the midst of really hard seasons is we have to understand the goal of those seasons. And what James says is the reason you can count it as joy, that you can have that steadfast contentment in hard seasons is because God is using those seasons to produce something in you. What's he producing? He's producing endurance. He's producing perseverance. He's making your faith stronger. And as those seasons come, and as your faith grows in the midst of those challenges, you move towards what James called this to be perfect. Now, that idea of perfect doesn't mean sinless. That's, that's not the idea. The idea that James uses there, the, the word is the idea of wholeness or completeness. It's, it's the idea of, like what we would say maybe is integrity. That we're often fractured as people, kind of scurrying about just following whatever one. James says, no, this actually produces a sort of faith that has the sort of integrity, the sort of connection that's whole and complete, that's consistent. You see, trials force us to wrestle with what we actually believe and what our goal is of life. And when we endure through trials, it actually can form in us a sort of faith that's complete. Another way you could translate that word is it's mature. It's not as James will say later, a faith that scatters to the wind, that rises and falls with the tides. It's only, I'm, I'm great. When, I, when things are good, I'm praising Jesus. I'm at church. I'm laying my hands. But as soon as things are hard, man, I'm out the door. See, that's not the faith. That's not mature faith. Mature faith is a sort of faith that says, no matter the season, I have the sort of resolute contentment and faith that actually produces joy in my life. It affects my very being. And what James wants you to know is when God brings trials, it's because he wants to produce that sort of life in you, that sort of resoluteness that you're not tossed to and fro, but you're steadfast, you're complete, you're whole, because that's what mature faith looks like. And when we understand God's goal, then that shapes how we understand the trials that we face. I was reminded of this recently by... Um, uh, a story about uh, a, a New Testament professor I love. His name's Tom Schreiner. He teaches at South uh, Southern Baptist Seminary. And several years ago, his wife was in a significant bicycle accident. So she, she crashed. She was knocked unconscious. She had severe uh, injuries. She was taken to the hospital. They didn't know what the damage was going to be. It was, it was touch and go for a while. And actually, it took her months and months of recovery. And Dr. Schreiner, during that time, uh, began to kind of write some updates online to family and friends to kind of share what they were facing, what they were going through, updates and those sorts of things. And this kind of online update kind of became a journal a little bit of his thoughts and experience through the thing. And a few years ago, kind of after this happened, the, the Baptist press picked up 
kind of some of his thoughts of his journal and wrote an article um, on him called The Shriners Display Strong Faith Amid Tragedy. And when you kind of read through some of this, you see a great example of mature faith that understands the goal of God. Because he doesn't know. In the midst of it, he doesn't know. And at the end, she, she came out of it, she was healed, but in the midst of it, he had no idea what was actually going to happen to his wife. And yet he would write things like this on a post in September 2nd. She was, uh, the accident happened in August of that year. She, he said, if sparrows don't fall to the ground apart from the father, neither do bicycle riders. Not even the tiniest thing can happen to us apart from the father's will. He didn't cease being her father when she fell. Why did it happen? The scriptures are clear to bring glory to God. He planned it for our good so that we would become more like Christ and trust our father even more. See, what he reminds us of is when we understand the goal that God wants to work a deep faith in us, a deep eternal faith, it shapes then how we view the challenge. You see, God works in our lives, not just in view of the temporary, he works in view of eternity, and that changes everything. That's why James will pick up the same idea again in verse 12, and he'll say this, blessed is the man. So blessed, that word is an Old Testament word. It means favor. God's favor is upon. Who? Who is God's favor upon? The man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I mean, James is literally just taking Jesus' words here at this point and applying them to his audience, right? Wasn't it Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount in, at the beginning who said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, Scripture always takes the long view when it comes to our life. We are so trapped by the temporary view. We think, God, what, what are you doing? You're just making my life worse. This is terrible. Why do I have to go through this? And God says, no, lift your head. I'm actually working something in you that's in my plan for eternity. And every time the Bible talks about suffering, what it wants to elevate your mind is to consider that suffering in light of God's eternal plan. Because when you do that, you realize suffering is temporary, but it's actually producing eternal life in you. This is why James says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Why? Because you'll receive the crown of life. That's why Paul would say this light momentary affliction I don't consider in comparison with the eternal glory that's in store for those who love him. You see, when we put our suffering in light of eternity, what we recognize is God is actually working for our good eternally. We were created to live with God forever. And the hope of Jesus is that when we trust in him, we get that sort of life, a life that begins now but carries on in God's new creation forever. And that's what God's working for in you. And when you consider that, then you can step back and say, all right, this is hard. I'm not even sure my emotions align with it. God, God I count it joy because I believe that you're working for my good and your glory. That's why James says you're blessed and highly favored. So when you're in seasons of suffering, part of the way that you survive that is by having a right understanding of God's goal. But the second thing that James wants to lead us into is the idea that surviving suffering requires a right understanding of our sinfulness. We both need to understand God's goal, but we need to understand our reality in light of 
God's goal. And the fact that oftentimes suffering is hard, not because of God, but because of our own brokenness within that reality. Look what James says in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, give birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, often the struggles that we feel in times of suffering, the temptations that we face in those moments, it's natural for us to want to look back and to blame God and say, God, you did this to me. You put this enemy in this situation. This is why I'm not living the way that you called me to live. This is why I'm not living in your world your way. It's natural for us to blame God. But what James wants to remind us is when you're in seasons of suffering and you face temptation, that's not God's fault. God is not evil and God cannot do evil. God is perfectly good. The evil that we face in those seasons is because of our own sinfulness. Because you and I are broken apart from Christ. We have turned from God's world and God's ways and sought our own ways. And we're, if we're not careful, when God calls us back, we still want to continue those ways, but then we want to blame God for it. And James says, no, 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 no. Just because you face a hard situation, that doesn't mean that it's bad. God is good. And if it is bad, often that's because your own sinfulness. So the, uh, the other day we had life group, right? And um, I started to try to count calories at the beginning of the year because I just like go through this endless cycle of like, I'm going to get healthier and then I'm not healthier and then I'm going to get healthier and then I'm not like, this is just my life. Every year I'm like, oh, I'll try something new. I'm going to count calories, right? So I had a great week. Life group comes around Friday night. We had salad for dinner, which is a great, we had a salad bar. I'm eating healthy. I'm doing my thing. And then someone in our life group brings a giant tray of delicious chocolate chip cookies. And... My desire was triggered. And I didn't have one cookie or two cookies. I might have had six cookies that night. You can judge me. I'll take it. Now, I think it would be a pretty ridiculous thought if I woke up the next day in my guilt for breaking my calorie count, doubling my calorie count that day on cookies, and I said, you know what? It's not my fault that happened. That's her fault. Why'd she bring such delicious cookies? I can't believe she would do that to me. I can't believe she put me in that situation. No, you're like, that's your own fault. Don't eat the cookies. Those are good cookies. It's not your fault that you fell into and ate six of them. You could have just eaten one. Yet how many of us, that's how we respond to challenging seasons in our life with God. I can't believe you would let that happen. That's why I'm not going to follow you. That's not why I'm going to live the way you call me to live. And James says, don't look back at God. God is good. God created a good world. And even the bad things that you see in your life, God uses for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So if there's an issue in the suffering that you're faced, the place isn't to look at the giver. He gives good things. The place is to look at yourself and say, what's the sin that's being elevated in my heart? Why am I struggling to trust God in this situation? Why am I struggling to see his goodness and his character and the reality? Because James is clear. God is not evil. He cannot be tempted to die evil, and he does not do evil. So if there's a problem in our suffering, it leads to us, our own desires. And suffering can be a way in which we see our desires and we aim those towards God instead of aiming those towards sin. 
Because your marriage is hard, that doesn't give you the right to lust after someone else. Because you lost your job, that doesn't give you an excuse to turn to substances for your satisfaction in life. Because you face a challenging loss or you face something that hurts you to the core, that's meant to drive you deeper into God. It's our brokenness inside that turns us away from God to temporary things that don't last. And James wants to say, you're not going to survive seasons of suffering if you don't recognize that the challenges you face come from your own brokenness. Because when you recognize that, it'll actually turn you then back to the greatest help that you can find in seasons of suffering, which is knowing and trusting the character of God. Look what he says in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. See, what James wants to remind us, if we're going to have a mature faith that survives seasons of suffering, then we need to have a right understanding of God's character. As we recognize our own sin, we recognize we're not the ones to turn to in seasons of suffering. And so we have to turn back to God and remind ourselves of the truth of who he is and allow that reality to shape our suffering so that we can consider it joy. And James wants to root you in two truths about God to help you understand what to focus on in seasons of suffering. The first thing is to focus on God's character, that God is in fact good. That's why he says every good and every perfect gift is from whom? It's from God. Every good thing that you have in your life is because of God. Everything. And if you stop and think about it for a minute, you have a ton. This week in my prayer time, I was in, my, in the prayer room, and I, I was just praying over this passage. And I just decided at one point, I'm not going to ask God for anything. I'm just going to thank God for what he's given me, for every good gift that he had. Man, I filled a page in like 20 minutes. Like, if you really stopped and considered what God has given you, yeah, you might face some hard things. I'm not denying that. But don't also recognize there's a ton of gifts that you have as well. There's a ton of things that are positive. And we focus our mind there. We're reminded God is good and he gives good things. That's why Jesus said last week in Luke 11, we looked at it. Even you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He's a good dad. That's his character. And because he's a good dad, he gives us the good things that we need. And what's the best, most incredible thing that he has given us that we can anchor ourselves in that reminds us of our character? James is clear. It's because God has given us salvation. Verse 18 is a verse you should anchor your soul in to help you navigate seasons of suffering. Every good and perfect gift, listen to the flow, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change, right? James reminds us, God is, doesn't change. The big theological word is immutable. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was good in eternity past. He's good in eternity present. He will be good in eternity future. He does not change. That's his character. But look at his action out of his character towards you, if you're in Jesus. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. See, James says you can trust God is good because God saved you. 
What Scripture reminds us time and time again is the experience of salvation. What we have in Jesus in being saved is not of ourselves. It is solely by God's grace and God's sovereign work that we are brought and rescued from death into life. If you're in Jesus this morning, it's not because you were smarter than other people. It's not because you had more gifts. It's not because God liked you more. It's not because God thought, that person has more potential. I want them on my team. No, it is merely because God is gracious and loving that he saw you in your sin and death on the verge of the flames of hell. And he graciously reached down and pulled you from that place and brought you into his kingdom. He raised your dead heart to life and he gave you a purpose for eternity. And he did that not because of your your will, but by his own will. That's what he's done for you. And if God would do that for you, he can trust, you can trust that in the worst moments, he's got a plan to produce good in your life, not bad. If he would save us by his own will, then he has purposes we can trust. And what James says is, draw your mind back. We have a good God. He's a good father. And he's brought us into his family. And because of that, we can trust him. And if we can trust him, then I can count the worst moments of life as joy because I know they will produce in me eternal life. That takes work. It takes reminders. To go back and remind ourselves of the true character of God and the true action of God. I remember when we adopted our daughter several years ago, right? Taylor came from a pretty challenging life. She faced a lot of challenges. And up to the point before she came into our family, she had never really had a consistent dad or consistent male presence in her, in her life. She had been raised by a single mom. She never even lived with a guy. Suddenly, she's got like, three, me and two brothers, like, you can imagine how that was. And so at first, she didn't even know how to relate, like, and what that looked like. And and I remember so many times in that first year with her, in that little bit, seeing her struggle through various aspects of life, seeing her face challenges, seeing things come in her way that she shouldn't have to deal with, that she suddenly found herself having to deal with. And I'd see so many times in that moment, her natural tendency was to turn inward or to run to my wife. And I just always felt this, man, like, I love this girl so much, and I just want to help her. I love her. I just want to, like, her to know how much I love her. I want her to be able to come to me with what she's facing. Like, I'm here. But it it was hard, right? She never experienced that before. And so it took a long time of me just patiently reminding her, Taylor, I love you. I'm here for you. I'm not going anywhere. Even when I discipline you, that's not because I want to push you out. That's because I want to help you. And it took a while, friends. It took a while. But I remember a few years ago, we were having a conversation around our table, and there was just a profound moment where Taylor shared with me, and I don't say this to pat myself on the back. Don't hear that at all. remember her expressing her love and she just said dad I just realized like you're always going to be there when I call you sometimes I don't pick up the phone but I try to most of the time but I've seen the change in our relationship I've seen the moments where she saw that my heart was for her was good I wasn't perfect but I loved her 
And that shifted the way she faced those challenging moments and still does. See, I think for many of us, God's rescued us and he's brought us into relationship with him. But we still carry an orphan spirit. And when trials come, we feel like that's just proving the point that God doesn't really love us. Like, yep, here we go. If God really loved me, he wouldn't let that happen. What we do is we take that moment and we turn inward on ourselves or we turn to the things in the world to try to figure out and navigate the challenges of life. And all along, God's standing there like, hey, I love you. Like, I love you so much, I actually sent my son to die for you. Like, I gave him as a sacrifice so I could rescue you and bring you into my family. You can trust me that I've got purposes in this moment. You see, what changes the reality of suffering is when we come to recognize not just the love of God, but the love and the power of God, that he loves us so much that out of his power, he did the work to save us. And because of that, he's not going to let go. There's not going to be a moment if you're in Jesus Christ where God looks at you and says, nope, done with that person. No, if he's brought you into your family, he's going to keep you in that family. And he's going to be patient with you while you learn what it looks like to trust him in the most challenging moments of life. You see, it's because we have a good God and it's because we have a good God who's saved us that we can count it all joy when we face various trials. Because what God does in those moments is he works an eternal good for you. And that's an amazing truth. So set your heart in the character of God. Tom Schreider said, the best thing to prepare for suffering is good theology. And James teaches us that a mature faith has the right theology of God. And that's what allows us to survive the hardest moments of life. Dwell on the truth of God. And I pray you would survive your own moments of suffering. Let me pray for us. God, we, we give you the praise this morning for the incredible God that you are. Not that you're sure an incredible God. Thanks for just being a really good dad. What kind of dad would give up his own son? That's how much you love us, Lord. See, God, we confess sometimes life beats the crap out of us. And it's hard to trust you sometimes in those moments. But thanks for being patient with us. Thanks for walking through those moments, even the times when we doubt or turn or act out of our sinfulness. I gotta just picture you in that parable that Jesus has where you just stand at the porch like a good father waiting for your child to come home. And so, God, I just pray that you would help each of us, even right now, that we would just 
both know your love, but even just to feel it for a moment. Holy Spirit, would you just come and apply the love of God to our hearts in such a way that we just feel tangibly your presence for a moment? Would you draw our minds to the truth of Jesus, that we can know your love because he was willing to die on our behalf and to rise again so that we would be freed from sin and brought into your family? Would you help us Help us to focus on the truth of who you are, that you are good, that you are unchanging, that you have done good by saving us. So that when those seasons of suffering come, whether we're going through it right now or whether it comes down the road, we'd be able to walk through those and say, yes, I consider it joy because I know my God is doing something in this season that will produce for me eternal life. Even now while we praise you, would you work in our hearts, draw us back to your character. We just love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.